morning, folks. My name is Lyle, and I'm an alcoholic. So, thank you for having me here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the story will go past uh, the hour. The I know that <clears throat> uh, some people have to leave at nine, so just feel free. Then we have those other groups that said, "I got that meeting starts on the hour and ends on the hour." And I'm thinking, I never drank like that. Um, <laughs> You know, I was out in California one time. They had these big <coughs> uh, speaker meetings once a month, and you know they have 1,200 people there. But they had a gal on the front row that was holding these signs up: 15 to go, 10 to go, 5 to go, <coughs> which is a little distracting, except she's pretty good looking, so it wasn't hard to look at her. But I thought, you know, I never had anybody come into the bar and say, "You have 15 minutes to go." I go, shoot, I never did that. I just, I, want, I didn't use a clock. I wanted a calendar, and. Uh, <clears throat> I thought, you know, sometimes we get awfully obsessively punctual when we get sober, but I understand that somebody, you know, you may have something. So feel free. Just leave when you got to. I'd go with you, except i got to finish. Uh, <clears throat> I've got a timer, which never lets me go more than two, two and a half hours. So we'll be <laughs> out here. Anyway, thanks for having me here. I um, was thinking here a while back... Um, about our speaker meetings, wondering why why we do those. And I can tell you that on a personal level, it was really important to me. Uh, if I get into this story a little bit, um, by the time I got here, when I got here, I was pretty well beat up. And uh, so I, I didn't go into treatment with the idea of resisting anything. I, I wasn't in there to debate or contest what they were saying. And I desperately really wanted to believe what I was being told and taught and what I was reading in the big book and what I was seeing in the doctors and the counselors and my fellow, some of the other people that were there. And But for me, when I got to see some of the speakers um, that came and told stories, it was an opportunity for me to see somebody up close living evidence and proof that what I was being told actually worked because they're right there in front of me and I get a chance to see that. And I think if I'd only seen or heard, you know, half a dozen speakers or something, I would have thought, well, you know, what are they, so what? You know, three, six people, it's, what are the odds? But there was a consistency to all of this that allowed me to really understand that this is a program that works. And it works consistently if we do what we just heard and how it, how it works. And I'm going, that's the recipe for staying sober. And we hear it so much that I think sometimes we just kind of blow past it. But I've told sponsees, I said, that's our recipe for staying sober. I'm not a cook. But I know one thing, when you start tweaking the recipe, whatever it is you're trying to come out with doesn't usually work out. So I can't, when it says willing to go to any lengths, I can't go, well, I'm willing to go to some, and here are the ones I like, here are the ones I don't like. I can't get in there and start mixing it up and come out with what <coughs> they're, they're talking about, which is sobriety. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. My sobriety date, I've been here before, haven't been here for a good long while, and um, had a native brother, Robert S., whom some of you know, and I used to come here when he had asked me periodically, and... Uh, uh, sadly, he's no longer with us, uh, but I miss him a little bit and a lot. And um, every time I pull in here, I expect to kind of see him. But he and I got to do a few things. We did some sweat lodges together and, and some other activities. And um, I was really sad to uh, when we lost him. <coughs> My sobriety date is March the seventh, nineteen ninety. I'll mix the story up a little bit. You know, I used to say what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, and, and uh, some guy in uh, southwest Georgia told me he was an old-timer, sent me a, an email. It was really a little testy. He said, um, you're, I'm here with uh, some newcomers, and we're listening to the CD, and you're misquoting the big book. And uh, I, I said, really, because I don't come up here and quote the big book. And uh, he said, you're saying what it was like. It's what we were like. So I put on my AA face and um, <laughs> sent back an email and said, well, excuse me, uh, I'm so sorry. And um, apparently that didn't placate him because he sends back another email and he says, well, you know, it's really important 
Um, because if I was, if, if some of us old timers were sitting on the front row and you started that way, we might very well get up and walk out, thinking that if you're going to start by misquoting the big book, the rest of the message can't be that effective. And uh, I hadn't expected a return email, so I took my A face off at that point. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, <clears throat> as long as we're in this discussion, I said, if that occurred, I don't think I'd burst into tears at the podium. And I probably wouldn't rush out and get a drink. And as long as we're talking about this, I said, maybe I should remind you that when we read how it works, it doesn't say rarely we've seen a person fail who's thoroughly memorized the book. And uh, so, so, so I didn't get any more emails. Um, actually, he and I became pretty good friends. I, as a matter of fact, I just had a letter from him yesterday about another event. I um, But he made his point because I've never said what it was like. Now, every time I go up there, I go, what we were like. Um, I mix the order up a little bit and start with what happened uh, because it was a national attention getter. And... Um, you know, I got to treatment the day after this incident took place. And people are doing what they always have done, always will do, you know. We've been waiting for you, and I didn't think that was particularly cute. And um, then they said, um, if you can't remember your last drunk, maybe you haven't had it yet. And I thought, I don't know how much of a problem that is for most people. But I said, I had Peter Jennings and Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw telling everyone about mine, and I don't think I'll have any trouble remembering it. <laughs> so. On March the 7th of 1990, <clears throat> I was in Fargo, North Dakota, and I went um, out to have a few drinks. That was it. Didn't intend to stay, didn't intend to get drunk, didn't intend for any of the unintended consequences that, that came from that to occur. Uh, it was just another layover for me, and um, on March the 8th, early in the morning, uh, an event took place that reached the public's attention, and that was uh, that an airline crew had flown from Fargo, North Dakota, to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, and were arrested upon landing for having flown drunk, and I was the captain of that flight crew. <coughs> Typically... You know, when we come to the podium, we don't talk about what we did for a living. It doesn't make any difference, really. It has no germane or relevant place in our story of recovery. Um, I have to talk about it because it was the thing that triggered this massive media blitzkrieg. And it was also the thing that set up <coughs> and qualified me for a federal felony conviction. <coughs> Excuse me. If I had been anything else... I'd been a doctor, an attorney, uh, electrician, a plumber, construction worker. If I'd been anything else, none of the fallout would have occurred. It wouldn't have happened. So <clears throat> I tell it in the context of the fact that it occupies that central core part of the story and tell you that I'm not an airline pilot who is an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic who got to live out some dreams and become an airline pilot. And I'll talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> I um, am a hardcore believer that when we come into this fellowship, we are all the same. We have no prestige, no status. I don't care if you live in the finest home in Buckhead or you were living under a bridge two weeks ago. That the one thing, the only goal, <clears throat> in my view, that any of us seek here is to achieve th something called sobriety. And that's our common denominator. So I just don't believe that we have any... Uh, there was reference made to the big book thing, and I, typically we don't do that, but <clears throat> that doesn't change anything either. It's just a story. And until I get an email saying that we just broke ground on the A Hall of Fame, I'm going to continue to believe that that's pretty much what we do here. It's just we just come in and get sober. <clears throat> Having said that, uh, on the morning of March the 8th, when that arrest took place, I walked off the airplane. Instantly, I saw two airport policemen. I saw FAA officials, and I saw Northwest Airlines company officials, and I deliberately did not leave my airline anonymous for reasons I hope that will become obvious as I complete the story. <clears throat> but I knew what was getting ready to happen. 
Northwest Airlines at that time was the only major carrier that didn't have a program for alcoholic pilots. All the other big airlines had those programs, and they dated back to the mid-70s when they first came into place. But Northwest had refused to participate in that, and so every few years <coughs> I would see a pilot get in some kind of trouble involving alcohol that reached the company's attention, and the outcome was always the same. It was swift, it was fatal, they were terminated, they never came back. And along with that, the rest of us, every one of those would sweep the airline like wildfire, and the rest of us <coughs> knew the names, we knew the facts of the situation, we knew the locations, and so we all had our own little private hall of shame involving these people and these incidents. I had about a million thoughts that day as I walked into this arrest, and one of them was exactly that, that that's exactly what my legacy is going to be here, and I had serious, severe, deep problems with that. I used to try to struggle to find enough words and the right words to convey to you the degree of shame and disgrace and dishonor that I felt instantly as I walked into this situation off the airplane. The big book says it better than I'll ever say it when it talks about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I don't think it can be said any better than that. And it was only going to get worse as the days ahead began to unfold. I think one of the reasons I had so much trouble with that was because I hadn't lived a life that was supposed to end like that. That really wasn't what I was about. And during the entire time that I had raised three kids who were now grown and gone, I was consistent in the fact that I tried to espouse things like duty, honor, country, character, honesty, integrity, do the right thing. And in the aftermath of what had just taken place and in the days that followed when I became a national pariah and a disgrace, all of that seemed pretty hollow and meaningless. And I had a, a serious struggle with that. I had a really difficult time with that. <clears throat> we were detained for about 12 hours that day. We went to two different facilities to give blood, and at the second facility there was a reporter who happened to be there and saw three uniformed pilots escorted by two police officers. That's how the story broke to the public. Now, I had no idea that morning that was going to occur. The, the, the idea that it was going to sweep through Northwest Airlines was completely devastating to me. I had no idea this was going to go all over the world. I was the first pilot <coughs> ever arrested and sent to prison for having flown drunk. That's happened a number of times since then, but I've noticed they don't quite get the media attention I got. Uh, <coughs> the news item will come up, and then within a day or two, it's gone. Um, but having been the first one, it got on the news, and it stayed for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, you know, I got to tell you, I didn't think Pearl Harbor had ever gotten that kind of coverage. <clears throat> I didn't think it was ever going to go away, ever going to go away. I got back to a commuter apartment at the end of the day. After 12 hours, this was surreal. I, um, there were times during the day that I felt like I was suspended someplace, and I was watching this happen to somebody else, that this could not be happening to me. It's just not possible this is happening to me. And then <clears throat> I would have those moments when I'm looking around, and I would almost get physically sick to my stomach because I thought it is. This is very real and it's happening to me right now. And uh, <clears throat> when I got back to my commuter apartment, it occurred to me for the first time that day that I was supposed to be back in Atlanta that evening and my wife had waited out here at the airport for four hours for me to come in and I had not shown up. I made a phone call to my house. She was not yet back. I didn't know what to say when I heard the answering machine. And all I could say was, there's been a disaster. I think I've lost my job, and I'll be home on the first flight in the morning. I don't know why she didn't call me back, but that was a gift. I was so sick, I just didn't want to talk about this. And um, <clears throat> none of my roommates were there, gratefully, thankfully. I got up the next morning, and I got back on the first flight to Atlanta. I knew that morning that I would never again, ever, wear an airline uniform. It was never going to happen, and that was my final morning, morning, moment that morning as I dressed to come home. <clears throat> I 
I exited the airport very quickly. I've never told the story, but what I didn't say that I saw my wife parked out there. And I felt like I had to climb over the curb just to get in the car with her. God, the shame was just crippling. It was just crippling. <clears throat> I couldn't look at her. We'd been married a long time. She pulled away from the curb. And all I could say is, honey, I'm so sorry. She's got a very soft South Texas voice. And she said as we pulled away, who better than I can possibly understand how you feel right now? And we drove home in silence, which I later saw as another gift. She had every right to say to me, why did you do that? You knew the Northwest policy. You know how they were. Why did you stay and drink? I had just lost a 22-year golden career, and she never said a word to me as we drove home, for which I was grateful. She went to work. I walked in the house, and I just couldn't stay still. <clears throat> I did not want to be in my skin. And I walked over, and I picked the phone up, and I called a Ph.D. doctor, family therapist, who gets involved in the story here in a little bit, because I didn't know anybody else to call. And I told him, I said, I need to declare an emergency. He said, I'll clear the calendar, come straight in. So I drove over, and it's like it happened five minutes ago. I can still see the office, the setup, the layout, the color of the walls. And the good thing was, <coughs> I was done. At this point, I was just beaten. So I told him straight out what had happened. I'm all through trying to minimize. I'm not cutting corners. I'm not, I'm just done. This is now Friday, March the 9th. <clears throat> and uh, I would hear two statements that day that I simply couldn't mentally process. And I heard the first one uh, as he turned to walk by his desk. He stopped and he looked at me. And he said, God, Lolly, he said, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is horrible. This is absolutely horrible. He paused and he looked at me and said, but maybe this is what had to happen. I didn't know why he said that to me. I didn't know why he would say that to me. I didn't know what he meant by that. He left and he came back a few minutes later and he said, I've set up an appointment for you to go see a doctor. He's a very prominent doctor here in Atlanta. He's clear on the other side of Atlanta. I want you to see him at 6 o'clock tonight. Now, even in the condition I was in, that registered. Because I know doctors don't typically see patients at 6 o'clock on a Friday night. I picked up on that. <clears throat> he said he's a, a very prominent psychiatrist here in Atlanta. He's a recovering alcoholic and cocaine addict. And he's certified in addiction medicine. I did not know there was such a thing as addiction medicine. Later, he told me, he said, based on your appearance... I was afraid you were a suicide. And I thought, I don't know what I look like, but I do know what I felt like. And he wasn't too far off the mark. We drove across Atlanta, Barbara and I did, following these directions. <clears throat> and we went in, and she stayed outside in a waiting area. And I met with this doctor. And I have no recollection of that meeting. It was just like an alcoholic blackout. But I hadn't had anything to eat or drink for two days. Couldn't keep anything down. Didn't want anything down. But I have no recollection of the meeting itself except that I was there. And whatever he asked me, I did the best I could to give him a straight answer. At some point, wherever it was, he paused and he looked at me and said, Well, you're an alcoholic and you need to get in treatment tonight. I remember thinking, remembering that there was no internal reaction to that because I've hated alcoholics since I saw two parents die from this, since I saw what happened inside my home, since I saw what happened in the native community, since I saw what happened on layovers when I saw drunks in the alleys and the doorways and on the benches. And I had a picture of an alcoholic. It was a very thin picture that was incorrect, but it was my picture at the time. And they were life's losers. They sucked this society dry, they never accomplished, they never achieved, and they never gave back. And I didn't fit that profile. I didn't fit that profile. But in the 24 hours since the arrest, in some way I'll never understand, <clears throat> way down in here, I connected the dots. I knew. I knew. 
I had lost a lifetime of effort and work and achievement because I went into a bar just to have a few drinks and wasn't able to stop. <clears throat> so I stayed until I destroyed it all. So I knew. Later when I got into treatment <clears throat> and they started talking about the disease of alcoholism, which I think is very different from someone who's observed and witnessed alcoholic behavior, every symptom that they came up with was mine. They didn't tell me it was mine. I lay there at night and thought about it, <clears throat> and I was an alcoholic. I'm not going to do a drunk log tonight or this morning. I don't have time. I'm watching this timer. I'm going to try to get through this. But I'll tell you, and I think it's important for identification purposes, but I don't come up here and try to prove anything or tell you that I'm qualifying myself for AA. I drank like probably most of you did. But I drank sporadically. I could vary my drinking patterns. And I did so purposely. Most normal drinkers don't exert that kind of effort to do that. <laughs> I um, also, over time, devised a number of tests to see if I was an alcoholic <laughs> based on zero knowledge of what the test criteria should be and I passed them all um, <laughs> bizarre things like I, I would sometimes uh, quit drinking for a month before my physical FAA physical and I was convinced that no alcoholic could, could stop for a month I just knew that to be a fact I didn't drink in the mornings except for two or three times during the year and I knew all of you drank every morning when you got up. I um, couldn't stay drunk for three days to three weeks. And I heard about alcoholics doing that. I, I didn't do that. I didn't beat or abuse my wife and kids. I thought that was part and parcel of it also. So I went through all of this stuff, and I just wasn't an alcoholic. I had two DWIs separated by about five years. My big argument was, you know, that could happen to anybody. Anytime something happens, I go, that could happen to anybody. When I get in treatment and I start going through first step stuff, I go, wow, it's a lot of stuff. Couldn't have all, all of that couldn't happen to one person. I've got a good Indian buddy talking about DWIs. He said he was in court for his sixth DWI before he learned that that did not stand for drinking with Indians. And uh, <laughs> You know, one of the things that I like about our recovery is we come here and laugh about stuff like that. I never saw any, I've never seen anybody laugh the first time they come into AA. And I tell you, I didn't laugh for a long time. And I was envious of the people that could. Because I didn't have anything going on that was even worth smiling about, much less laughing, laughing about. And so sometimes today, if I'm in a meeting and there's a newcomer and we're all laughing, I'll get the newcomer afterwards. And I'll say, I know how you're feeling. I wasn't laughing either. None of us were when we got here. But we come here and we laugh now about things that that, um, that most people can't laugh about. We laugh about them <clears throat> because we're not doing them anymore. You know, I heard a guy say just recently at a place where I was at, he said, we come here <clears throat> and we laugh about peeing in our pants. <laughs> he said, it's not funny to you if you're still peeing in your pants. <laughs> I, thought, I, I love the way we see these things, <clears throat> and we see them in a whole and healthy in healing way, because we can. I, uh, <clears throat> I had a lot of reasons to believe I was never an alcoholic, never going to be an alcoholic. And having watched two parents, uh, that was a pretty motivating factor. I wasn't going to be like either one of those. I never go to the podium without thanking my parents, though, because they weren't drunk all the time. And it took a while before all of the horrible, bad stuff happened. And before that happened, <clears throat> in the times that they were sober, they did an awful lot to teach me some good things, and I am indebted to my parents. I am not an alcoholic because of my parents. I owe them for the good things they gave me, and I always try to acknowledge that. <clears throat> I, um, we followed the instructions going back to the treatment center across town. We made the final turn. It's dark, and I was going into Anchor Hospital over in um, College Park over there. And uh, as we made the final turn, the headlights hit a sign that was there then, not there, it's not there now, but the sign at the time said, Anchor Hospital, Hospital for Alcoholism and Other Chemical Dependencies. And I hit the brakes and stopped. The lights were directly on the sign, directly in front of me. 
And I sat there and I looked at the sign. And it was just like somebody kicked me right in the stomach as I sat because there's the reality. And I thought, how, how do I end up in a treatment center for alcoholics? How did this happen? And for just a few moments, as I said, there are little micro mini flashbacks of my past life and some of the accomplishments and achievements and the things that I was extraordinarily proud of, most of them done against the odds, <clears throat> that I thought had given me a certain definition and reputation and character and identity, and they vanished. I wasn't even sure if they really had ever existed. And I remember sitting there devoid of any semblance of value. I had none. No worth as a human being at all in that moment. Some years later, I read a um, summarizing paragraph from one of the doctors at the treatment center. And it said, given the history and background of this man, it was unlikely to believe he would ever be a productive member of society. I remember kind of flinching at that and thinking, man, that's, that was pretty, that's a pretty dismal conclusion. Then I thought, well, I was the one that gave him all the information. So <clears throat> we started down the hill into the treatment center, and for the first time that day, it occurred to me this was my 27th wedding anniversary, March the 9th. And I said, hell of a way, it's been an anniversary, huh? And I heard the second statement that day that I could not process and didn't even attempt to. Barbara said very softly, might be the best one we ever had. And I thought, who could think that right now? My life is totally destroyed. Will never, ever be repaired. I've lost everything. Who could think that right now? And so I didn't respond. <clears throat> Let me uh, lighten this up a little bit and tell you a couple of years ago, March the 9th rolled around and uh, anniversary again and one of my sponsees pulled into the driveway and uh, came in and we were having coffee and he's all bright and cheery and bubbly. He said, yeah, I know it's your anniversary because I've heard the story. And then he says, <laughs> and he goes, well, what's the secret to having stayed married for so long? And I didn't get a chance to say anything. Barbara beat me to the punch and she said, mostly due to the fact that I can never stand to admit I made a mistake. And... Uh, <laughs> She's aware that this is supposed to be an ego-deflating program, and that's her job, and uh, she does it well. <clears throat> I'm going to stop and um, go back to the beginning and hopefully come back and conclude, but <clears throat> I'll tell you that I was um, born in Wichita, Kansas, September 1938, so I'm coming up on 73 pretty quick. I, uh, don't have any, I feel like I'm about 36, and um, I uh, don't have any problem with the number, except this big number that got here too fast. <clears throat> and um, I always tell my age because I, I know that when I'm sitting out there, I'm always trying to figure out how old the speaker is. And, uh, <laughs> and I can usually do it before the hour is over. And um, the ones that are really clever and devious, and I don't know if it's by intent and design or just instinctive, are the women AA speakers. And so they won't tell you, and they just kind of drop little... Uh, little hints along the way, and um, I'll hear one of them say, well, I got out, of, I graduated from college, and I'll go, well, she must have been 21, 22, and she'll say, the same year that uh, Kennedy was assassinated. I'm going, is that 63? <clears throat> she'll say, I had my first child when I was uh, 26, which was two years after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I'm going, <laughs> 68, 69, I'm adding, subtracting, debiting, crediting, and <clears throat> I had said this, I had gone through this little litany just at, at two conferences ago, and there's a wonderful speaker by the name of Mari G. from Toronto. She and I have been together a few times, and she's an older lady, very sophisticated. She said, I, and she's got this Irish brogue, and she says, I've heard Lyle speak, so I'm going to help you out. I was born the same year that Mick Jagger was. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, so I just uh, get it out of the way. You know, so many of my friends have got replaced knees and hips and back operations and other parts that are medi medicated or modified. And, and I go, well, I don't have any of that. All my parts work. And, um, of course, that's Barbara's cue to say, well, most of the time. And uh, 
Yeah, I've been blessed with some good genes in addition to some of the others I've got. <clears throat> I grew up in a um, World War II housing project on the southeast edge of Wichita. It's an economically depressed area and a um, place where most people would not want to live. But I was very happy there. It was in the 50s. It was the days before drive-by shootings and stuff was going on in school. Most, the worst thing that happened was people smoked and they drank. I've never smoked. I don't know why. I did everything else I wasn't supposed to. I never did any drugs and uh, just wasn't interested in it. It was a very diverse community, uh, blacks, whites, Hispanics, and a small Native American segment. And I was part of the Native American segment. I grew up in the Native American culture. I was a, in the songs and the powwows, and I was a dancer. I'm an ethnic mix of several different things, and the only two that seem to cause a problem when I'm drinking are the Irish and Comanche parts, and, and, uh, <coughs> and uh, they always show up the minute I have my first drink, and so it's going to be an entertaining evening. My Comanche name is uh, Yatsatanapa, which means flying man. Um, I love the Irish stuff. I, I, you know, I had all the songs and the albums, and I you know, love the freedom songs and drinking songs, and and um, knew them, would sing along with them. And when I was flying around the country, I knew where the Irish places were, whether it's Boston, Chicago, Washington, D.C., or other places. And so I, I knew how long it took me to change clothes and get there for the live Irish entertainment. I'd be sitting there singing along to Wild Colonial Boy and the Girl in the Black Velvet Band, all these songs that I knew and loved, and God, just having a great time drinking. And I'd literally be the last one out the uh, door when the band quit. Then I might be someplace else, the mood might be different, location would be different, the other side would kick in, and I'd think this would be a nice night to just go have a couple of drinks and kill some white people. And uh, <laughs> so, so I just never knew what was going to happen. <clears throat> um, by the time I was 14, the alcohol had really wreaked havoc on the family. I, we just imploded. And uh, my parents got their first divorce, and it really affected me big time. My 12-year-old sister uh, was hit even harder. I graduated about three years later at age 17, and by that time, each parent had been married and divorced two more times. So I'd gone through a lot of step-parents and a lot of step-siblings. wouldn't know any of them if they were in the room today, but I didn't like them. I clashed and had conflicts. And I would move from one family to the other at their request, and something would happen over here, and then I'd move back. The faces had changed, names had changed, and I just kind of traversed back and forth going through high school. You know, I was a good student when I applied myself, but nobody was watching me. I was just by myself, and so I squandered a lot of academic opportunity in high school. Just wasted it. I was an athlete. I thought I was pretty good. I was probably average at best. I graduated when I was 17, and uh, not too many people from the area I came from went to college. Most of them married their little high school sweethearts and went to work for Boeing or Beach or Cessna or some of the other aircraft facts, uh, plants there in Wichita that they were known for, and there were more then at the time. And I wasn't interested in doing that, and I didn't have a girlfriend anyway. And I was going to join service, and one of my buddies came back from uh, the Marine Corps, right out of Marine boot camp. And so I hooked up with him, and I sat, we spent several hours in a bar one night, and I'm just sitting there listening to these horror stories of what Marine drill instructors do to their recruits in boot camp. I'm hanging on every word, and that's probably an early indication of flawed thinking because several hours later I'm thinking, man, I just can't wait to go do that. And uh, <laughs> I was 18 by this time, and I found a Marine recruiter within a couple of days, signed up, and off I went. I hear a lot of stories over the course of the year, and my story is different in two regards. Most of the speakers that will come here and tell you their story, and it's their truth, there's a common theme that I never fit in. I never felt like I belong. That's not my story. There's another one. The minute I had my first drink, I found what I was looking for. That's not my story. That's just not my story. <clears throat> I went into Marine boot camp. All I wanted to do was survive it, it was, um, and I found where I belonged. Once I got past the initial shock of it, I loved it. It was tough. It was extreme. It was intense. It was competitive. And only someone who's been there will really understand what I'm saying when I say that. I applied myself. I, <coughs> my parents have always taught me how to do my best. And so I have a good work ethic. Thirteen weeks later, 
as we approached the end of boot camp, about 70 of us, drill instructors called out three names of the three top guys in the platoon. I was the second name called. I was amazed. I hadn't expected that. And I was extraordinarily proud. I had never accomplished or achieved anything like that under those conditions. I got one stripe, one little stripe right here, private first class, but three out of 70. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I kept looking down at that red bordered single stripe, private first class, Prowse. And <clears throat> we went to Camp Pendleton for combat training. It was raining one night. I'm inside. My buddies are all outside walking post in the rain, but because I got that stripe, I'm acting corporal of the guard, so I'm inside. And I look over, and there's a first lieutenant uniform in the corner with that silver bar on there. And I'm looking at that uniform and sliding my chair back, and I'm thinking, you know, the rate I'm moving up, general can't be too far away. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was going to stay. That's where I felt good. I belong there. All I want to do is be a Marine. Four and a half years later, all throughout this entire story, my drinking is, is accelerating. But I'm always in a place where drinking is accepted, hard drinking especially. And so it becomes difficult to pull me or distinguish any of my drinking from those around me. It, it gets that way later on, but not for a good long while. <clears throat> Four and a half years later, I walked into my Marine unit. My commanding officer took me into his office. He said, there's a new program out called Marine Aviation Cadet. He said, you're the only one whose entry scores are high enough to qualify you possibly for that program if you want to test for it. Now, I knew I had some high scores. I don't know how they got there, but I knew I had some high scores. I was aware of that. <clears throat> So I said, I want to test. I had always wanted to fly. But that was a vague, wispy, in the back of my brain dream. That was never reality. Because, in my view, the people who got to fly came from Eastboro in Wichita, the ritzy part of Wichita. They came from the other places that, were, that had good families, that had prestige, and they had college educations. They didn't come from my background. And those are the people, in my view, who got to be pilots, not me. But he's, he's telling me I can go take a test. So I went over and I tested. It was all day. And I passed. <clears throat> then he said, I need to tell you some more. This is an 18-month program. Roughly half will not make it. And he said, you're, you're one of the very rare few exceptions who's going to get to come in the back door as an enlisted Marine taking this test. Almost everyone coming in from the civilian side, 98, 99%, will have to have all of them will have to have two years college minimum, and most will have more, and those will be the people you'll be competing with. Now, I could do the thinking that if half weren't going to make it, and I'm starting off way, way, way behind with a high school education, my chances are not real good. But I wanted to fly, so I said, okay, I'll do it. I went home to Wichita. They were having a powwow. I went out and danced. <clears throat> I'm going to Pensacola the next day. They had what they call a special for me, an honoring dance, and I was impacted by that all the way to Pensacola because I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking I cannot come back to the Native community and tell them I didn't make it. I'm the only one with this opportunity. I cannot come back with my tail between my legs as a failure. I just can't. So for 18 months, I was driven by that idea, and that was good because I was studying a lot of times when my buddies were not because I was afraid of washing out. I was watching my friends wash out every week, sometimes daily. I don't remember ever one of them ever looking me in the eyes. He came up with his sea bag over his shoulder to say goodbye to me. Ashamed, maybe with tears in his eyes, I'd never see him again. They were not going to fly. And I thought, at some point along the way, that will be me. The final six months, I left Florida. I went to Texas for advanced jet flight training. I'm drinking, and I'm drinking hard now. Because I'm going to be a fighter pilot. That's part of the persona. We're all drinking hard. And the big book talks about this. I can manage my drinking at this point in time because I had something that was more important than the booze at that point in time. At that point in my progression towards alcoholism, I could still manage the drinking. Every time I drank, I got drunk. I don't remember ever drinking and not getting drunk. That can't be so or I wouldn't be standing here. But during my cadet time, Friday night, Saturday night, all of us just blasted. But Sunday, I shut it off. I'm studying. It's before Vietnam because I've got a dream. And I have to be ready Monday 
to pursue that dream. And that's how I'm drinking at this point in time. Went to uh, <coughs> Texas for advanced jet flight training, Beville uh, Naval Air Station. First night I got in there was a Friday night. I hooked up with a bunch of guys I got separating from. We went to the officers club, got drunk. They said, let's uh, head into town. There's a little old-fashioned drive-in called Canes. It's where the good-looking South Texas girls are, and they like us cadets because we represent some good marrying potential. So I said, okay. <clears throat> we headed in. I was never very gutsy with the gals, but I'd had a lot to drink. And they immediately went after a carload of girls. I stood at the back and drank a little bit more because I needed a little bit more oomph. Uh, when I drank, wondrous things happened for me. And I sat there. I noticed the driver wasn't talking to anybody. So I sat there, and I, or I stood back there, and I drank. And I rehearsed about two or three or four things <clears throat> because I'm going to approach the driver. And I thought, these are, just, these are so witty, so clever, so quippy, so neat. Um, and they're just deadly. And I, so I'm going to walk up to her. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't just sit there and take her clothes off. And um, <clears throat> so I walked up, and she turned and looked at me. And she was a good-looking gal. And I forgot everything I was going to say. And I'm standing there just completely vacant. And she's got some look of expectation. And the only thing I noticed was she had beautiful brown eyes. So I said, you got the most beautiful brown eyes I've ever seen, except it was late. It kind of it didn't come out the way I wanted to. It was kind of like, hey, she's brown eyes. <laughs> and, uh, and she pulled back and recoiled. I thought, God, I could have peed on the side of her car, and she wouldn't have had a worse look. You know? and, uh, and I just turned around and walked away. And uh, I've been drunk a lot of times. And I know that there have been a lot of times when I couldn't talk. But most of the time, I don't know that. And that night, I knew it. And I thought, you know, this, there's something really cruel about being so drunk that you can't talk and knowing that you can't talk, and yet not so drunk that you can't still be embarrassed. And I just walked away, and I thought, I'm not going back. That's it. A little while later, she got out, walked inside, and I got a good look at her. A really good look. And she had turquoise shorts on. And I'm watching. And I think, God darn, she's really got a cute rear end. She's got pretty legs, nice shape, brown eyes, way more than I had on my list. And, uh, <clears throat> and I had an A.A. thought. I didn't know it was an A.A. thought. Wouldn't know it for about 29 more years. But I'm watching her walk in. And I'm thinking, man, I want what she has, and I'm willing to go to any length to get it. And I did. Had a chance encounter with her the next day. Uh, I had a cadet buddy with me. She had a girlfriend. We walked in. I saw him go in, and I walked in. I was scared. I was nervous, but I was sober. She let us sit down. We bought him some coffee. She gave me her name, and we began to date. And on February the 25th of 1963, which was her 20th birthday, she penned a set of gold wings right here. Two gold bars. I had come out of this community, and I'm now a commissioned Marine Corps second lieutenant, I've completed, i got my gold wings, I'm fighter pilot. I've got a good-looking girl who thinks I'm okay. Hollywood couldn't have scripted a better time, a better date, a better set of circumstances. I had finally completed. We went home to Wichita for three weeks' leave. She stayed with my sister. And um, I called her as the leave was coming to an end and said, let's run down to Oklahoma and get married. So we drove down to Newkirk, Oklahoma with a couple friends of mine. They took their rings off. We borrowed the rings. We stood in front of a justice of the peace, and that was our idyllic, beautiful wedding. But we're still married 48 years later, and the couple who loaned us the rings got a divorce shortly thereafter. So whatever it was we did, worked. She joined me out in California. She was the youngest wife in the squadron, 20 years old, probably the most popular, best liked. She was instantly pregnant. Should not come as a surprise. <laughs> we had a little baby boy, and eight days less than a year later, we had a second one. And I used to really get ticked off and tired of people coming up and going, you guys Catholic? I go, like the, only the Catholics can do that. And I'd say, no, we're just a couple of horny Protestants. And um, <laughs> I not have any problem with this. And um, I left her and those two little babies and went to Vietnam. <clears throat> and... Uh, we were 50 miles south of Da Nang, first time a Marine, very primitive. We were living in tents and sand, eating sea rations, had a little short portable aluminum matting strip that was half of what we needed. All of our flying was uh, carrier-arrested landings. We were all carrier-qualified. Genesis takeoffs, hot, 100, 110, 120 degrees sometimes, and we acquitted ourselves very well over there. I was with 28 of the finest pilots I'll ever see. 
and what an honor and a privilege it was for me to just be with them and to be able to fly with them. While I was over there, I put in for a regular commission, which would guarantee me a, a career in the Marine Corps. I had a reserve commission. I thought there is no way on God's earth that the Marine Corps will give a regular, a, a regular commission, which are very competitive at that time, to an officer with a high school education. Usually required a college degree minimum. And I got a regular commission. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go, work hard, make the effort, accomplish, and achieve. That's what is expected of me, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to go to a bar in Fargo and disgrace myself and lose everything that I've ever had. <clears throat> I came back with some personal decorations and um, stayed in the Marine Corps for another two and a half years. Drinking is picking up more and more and more. Things are starting to happen, but not serious, severe, debilitating consequences. I can just brush them off to the side. I finally decided to get out because of the family separation that I was going to uh, be required four to six more years away from my wife and kids, and so I resigned. I hated to do it. It was a painful decision. I spent 11 and a half years in the Marine Corps. I'd gone as a barely 18-year-old kid out of high school, and I came out as a seasoned, well-decorated, well-thought-of senior Marine Corps captain and fighter pilot. I'd had a good ride and a good journey through the Marine Corps. For nearly 22 years at Northwest, I had the same thing happen. Three weeks after I re uh, resigned, I was in class at Northwest Airlines. I loved what I did. I loved the people in the front and the back. I loved going to work. I loved flying. Barbara and I had talked about adopting a child even before we got married. When we went to Northwest. I said, let's either do it or quit talking about it. So we adopted a little girl. She'd always wanted a little girl. It was a heck of a struggle because we already had the two boys, and we fought hard for 14 months. And we got a little girl, a little Indian girl. She came to our house when she was 17 days old, the most beautiful little girl I have ever seen. And I just didn't know at that time what little girls do to their dads, but I quickly found out. And Dawn became the center of my universe. She couldn't walk past me without me saying, come over here. And I'd pick her up and look in that little face, and I'd say, thanks for being my girl. She'd say, thanks for being my dad. I thought we had everything, the perfect family, the perfect neighborhood, the perfect career, the perfect everything. And when she was 17, she ran away from home. I had put off being a captain for two years because I didn't want to be gone as a junior captain. She was coming up on high school graduation. I went to Chicago to take a special written test, and that afternoon she ran away from home. Barbara found the runaway note late that night, couldn't call me. I called home from Chicago the next day. And instantly knew something was wrong. She told me Donna had run away, and I panicked and blurted out where to go, who to call, where to look. God, my little girl was gone, and I was scared. <clears throat> Two hours later, I was back in, a, in Atlanta. I'm not aware of anything happening to me on that airplane, but something did. I don't know when, why, where, or how it occurred. I wasn't aware of any change taking place inside of me, but when I got off the airplane, I hated her. I hated her. Worse than I thought I had the capacity to hate anyone or anything. And it was white hot. I told Barbara, I said, she will never come back to my house and live. I don't care if she dies in the streets. She will not come back here, and I don't want her name ever brought up or mentioned to me as long as I'm alive. And I told the rest of the family. Within two days, all of her furniture, anything she'd ever owned or touched in the house was gone. I went to the bank, and I ripped up her adoption papers including a loving letter from foster parents who had had her the first 17 days. Beautiful letter. I went to an attorney and disowned her. I tried to annul the adoption and couldn't. And in the midst of this, as I'm assessing and looking all the way around, I'm thinking, you know, my poor wife just isn't handling this too well. She probably needs a therapist. <laughs> so that's where the Ph.D. came from. I got in the yellow pages, and by the luck of the draw, yanked his name out of the phone book and, for, and got a good, and was lucky. He was a good, good doc. We saw him twice a month for about two years, and he ended up knowing as much about me as anybody except Barbara. I didn't like talking about my daughter. And um, one time something was said, and I made a statement that absolutely was completely, totally revealing. I had never formed the thought in my mind. The thought had never occurred to me. I'd never run these words through my mind or my brain. But out from my mouth flew a statement, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, doctor. I said, I would rather hate than hurt. And that's what I did. 
He said, you survived a childhood doing that, and if you continue, it'll destroy you. Everything he said to me was true. It just took some time to prove out. But I learned that, that I'm not going to take pain. I will not experience pain because I get angry. You can't hurt me. Barbara can't hurt me. My kids can't hurt me because I throw up that wall of anger, and I don't get the pain through there. I block it because I'm too angry to hurt. That's pretty much where we were when the arrest took place. The alcohol quit working for me. Barbara said, I don't want you drinking at home. I said, that's fine. I'll drink on the road. I knew every place that we lay over, where the liquor stores were, how long it took me to change clothes and get there, which ones closed at 8 o'clock on Saturday, which ones closed at 9, which ones were open on Sunday. And so I would immediately go and get a quart of booze, go back to my room, lock the door, turn the TV on so there's some noise. I wouldn't answer the door if somebody knocked. I wouldn't answer the phone if they called. I didn't care to go out with anybody. I sat and drank. I mixed drinks strong. The first one sometimes I have to choke to get down, but I, go, I get it down. And the rest go down quickly. But I couldn't get the relief I wanted. I'm standing right here right now. I feel the drink. I can feel it. I, the warmth and the, the, the giving up, the lessening, everything goes away. I just float away. I don't care. It's not as bad now as it was a moment ago. I couldn't get that. I, I wanted that so badly, I couldn't get it. And for all intents and purposes, I might as well have been pouring gasoline right on the fire because all I got was more anger, more hatred, more resentment, more self-pity, more martyrdom. Look what I did for her and look how she repaid me. And I would just crank this thing up and every time it was worse and worse and worse. And by the time it was over, I was exhausted. It just wouldn't work for me anymore. That's where we were when we were arrested, when I was arrested. I went into treatment the next day. I went in Friday night the clothes on my back. I didn't want anybody to know who I was or what I was. I was so ashamed. And within a day or two, it's all over the television now, everybody knows. It was a week before anybody knew the color of my eyes. Because I, everywhere I went, my head was down. I wouldn't look at anybody. I couldn't look at anybody. And I sat in the group with my head down. And in the first week, I walked into a group. They closed the door. There were eight or ten of us. And for some reason, I will never understand, I began to talk, which is counterintuitive to me. And I talked about my daughter. And I didn't have that wall up any longer. And I broke down and cried. I hadn't even cried at my parents' funerals. And I cried in front of about eight or ten people. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed, and I felt so naked. It was a wonderful breakthrough for me. It hadn't got anything to do with how tough I am or how tough I'm not. And I think I began to heal that day. We had no visitors, no phone calls. And I called, I wrote to Barbara and said, get a hold of Don, let's put the family back together again. The treatment center heard of it, and they said, that is such an amazing breakthrough for you. We'll give you a day room if you can make it happen. The two doctors heard about it, and they had, the, the family therapist had written, this family will never reconcile. And the two doctors said, could we please come watch? A couple of days later, I walked into a day room in the treatment center, the two doctors we're off to the side. I saw them. I looked at my daughter. My two sons were there. And I thought, I don't remember her being that small. I hadn't seen her for two years. And I walked over and can't tell you what it felt like to put my arms around her and tell her how much I loved her instead of how much I hated her. And as I looked down in her arms was a five-month-old granddaughter who took my heart as quickly as my daughter had. My daughter had gotten married and I didn't even know her last name. First week of treatment, the promises are already starting to come true. I'm just not aware of it yet. My daughter and I still have that relationship today. She'll be 41 this month. And all she has to do is call and say, Hi, Daddy, and I just melt into my shoes. Already the promises are starting to come true. But other things were also happening. A week to the day that I entered treatment was announced on TV. I wouldn't go near either one of the two TVs. It was announced on TV that I'd been fired by Northwest. The FAA had performed an emergency revocation of all my flight certificates, and I'd lost my FAA medical because of my alcoholism. Within a month, within 30 days from the day of the arrest, I was broke again. I'd grown up that way. I deserved it, but the rest of my family did not. The tragedy of alcoholism is that I'll take my consequences, but I'm not the only one that gets to share in them. I bring them to everybody that loves me. They get to suffer as well as I do. They get a part of this, and I bring it to them. I um, <clears throat> suddenly began to hear 
about legal consequences. Nobody knew anything about legal consequences. None of the attorneys on the day of the arrest knew anything about it. And here they come about two to three days apart, and they come in and they take me out of a group room, and it's like they suck the air out of the room, and I can't breathe. The only time I thought I'd ever be locked up was as a POW in Vietnam if I was shot down. Now they're talking about me going to jail. I'd never been in jail. I couldn't do jail. And the penalties, every time they take me out, the penalties are doubled. Minnesota charges me. North Dakota charges me. Minnesota doubles. North Dakota doubles. Federal marshals are going to come down and take me out in handcuffs. Then the last time I walk out, there's a doctor standing there. I thought, oh, there's never been a doctor before. And he makes me go down to his office and sit down. He said, I have to tell you that a federal grand jury has just indicted you. You're looking at 15 years in federal prison, a $250,000 fine, and an attorney's coming in Sunday wants $50,000. I said, I haven't got it. can't see him. I don't have it. He said, I have to ask you if you're going to hurt yourself. And I said, no, I, I'm not. I walked back, and I, I, I collapsed in my room. I don't remember falling, but what I do remember is for the second time in treatment, I'm lying with my head next to the carpet, and I'm crying. And I'm saying, God, I can't do this anymore. Not even one more time. I can't do it even one more time. I have nothing left. Please help me. And I remember sleeping that night. I had many, many, many experiences in treatment. Wonderful experiences. I don't have time for them. But I got out of there, went back to Minnesota, was arraigned quickly in a, a three-week public a trial. Everybody was covering all of a sudden, I'm looking at sketches of me up there on TV. I never thought that would be me on the 6 o'clock news, and there I am. The media is just blasting this thing. I can't, I can't find a way to the courtroom. No matter whether I go the front way, the back way, they've got them all covered, and there's throngs of reporters fighting to get to me like a pack of dogs. And the terror that I feel every time I see them, and I start to mantra the serenity prayer as I'm approaching and I can feel something in here lessen a little bit. It doesn't go away, but I can feel just a slight lessening of whatever it was. And I walk into them, and they're sticking microphones and cameras in my face trying to get a reaction. I had an advantage over the other two guys because I was the alcoholic. And I would go to meetings at night during this trial. I never shared. And at first it was real scary because you all recognized me when I walked in. And then I would have to settle and be okay. And I would take whatever energy you had in the room, and I'd take it back to the courtroom, and I'd be okay. Going through a criminal trial is indescribable, especially when it's covered by the media the way mine was. The prosecutor's up there telling everybody what a no-good piece of crap I am, always have been, always will be, and it's being published and putting all the everywhere. And sometimes I would look across the courtroom and I'd see Barbara, and I'd, we'd look and she'd mouth the words, I love you. And I'd go, okay. And i get through the day. Had an amazing story with an attorney. Don't have time to go into it, Damon. Uh, beautiful story. And I told him, I said, I'll be found guilty. I wanted to plead guilty. He said, you can't. The media pressure is just too great. So when you plead guilty, you're not saying I didn't do it. You're just exercising a constitutional right. They brought the charges. Let them prove it. And I said, okay. They came in. They went out. And they came back in. I said, I'll be found guilty. And I know it. And it's okay. They announced the verdict. I'm the captain, so I'm always the first one up. I saw him stiff, and I reached over and patted him. I said, it's okay, Peter. It's all right. Went back for the sentencing. The judge had strong feelings about this whole thing, and I saw him for three weeks. That judge later, eight years later, became one of the strongest advocates I've ever had. It didn't begin that way. I saw him in the courtroom. Went back for the sentencing. There were guidelines in place, 12 months, 18 months maximum, based on the algebraic equation that fit my crime at the time. And the judge, a day and a half before, announced to the other two attorneys and the media, I'm going to depart upward from the sentencing guidelines. Prosecutor hadn't asked for it. And I knew he was going to do it. This is going to be big. The federal judge I was in treatment with told me a lot of stuff. He said, sentencing is a charade. He said, you'll talk, your attorney will talk, but that sentence is set the minute we come through the door. It's set, we, and we're completely unaffected by that. Other judges and attorneys across the country have told me that's so. So I knew nothing was going to change. My attorney said he can go all the way to 15 years right now. So I walked in there that morning terrified. Didn't know what I was going to say. And I, he lectured for 30 minutes about what was getting ready to happen. Then I stood to speak. And my prayer was just let me get something out from, from the heart. And I talked about being grateful for the things that had happened with it, my daughter and the family. I had accepted responsibility for this event from day one. And I couldn't change anything that had happened yesterday, much less several months earlier. And I was grateful for my sobriety. 
The judge announced a sentence on me of 16 months, two months less under the guidelines, and it blew everyone away. I was expecting five years minimum. I, and two years later, he told my attorney, he said, I was going to sentence him to four years that morning in prison, and I changed from the bench. A miracle took place that morning that never happens. The other two guys to this day do not know that they were getting ready to get three years because I got 25% more than they did. They got 12 months. They don't know that they were headed for three years until the judge changed on me. He, the other thing he did that nobody expected, I I'd given my personal effects to Barbara. I said, I think we'll be led directly into the handcuffs away for the media. He said, this is a complex law. It's the first time it's ever been exercised and was not designed for pilots, a lot of legal uh, considerations. I'll let you three men remain free until your appeals are exhausted. The other two said, okay. I said, no, I'll go to prison now because I learned in here that I deal with life on life's terms. As I stand here and do a first-person story, there's a lot about I and me. It's never been about I and me. It's been about we, what you taught me and how you taught me how to use it. It's all been about everything I've learned in treatment. I said, I'll go to prison now. I've been convicted. It's time for me to go. He told my attorney later, he said, no defendant before or since has ever done that as they stood in front of me, <coughs> especially when they had an appeal pending. He told my attorney, he said, I was lost for words. I told my attorney, I said, he wasn't lost very long. <laughs> On December the 5th of 1990, <coughs> 34 years to the day that I'd entered Marine Boot Camp, I walked into the Atlanta Federal Prison System as inmate 044478-041. <coughs> I spent 424 days in the federal prison system. I never talk about it from the podium. hadn't got anything to do with my recovery. My recovery has everything to do with how I dealt with prison, the people in it, and the circumstances I encountered. A lot of experiences in there. <clears throat> All I say is there are two groups of really sick people out there. The sickest group goes home every night. And um, sometimes somebody will come up and go, I'm a prison guard, correction officer, and I uh, hurt my feelings. I go, if you're part of this fellowship, that doesn't apply to you. And if that's not good enough, go call your sponsor. I don't want to talk to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I say is I made 12 cents an hour when I worked there. I mean, when I was out there, the thing that really irritated me was there was no 401k plan. Um, <laughs> 424 days, I came out, <clears throat> and I had a guy come up to me one time. He goes, 424 days? Man, he said, I was out there 17 years. I looked at him and smiled and said, I guess you win. Uh, uh, that's a long time for me. That's a long time for me to be locked up. I'm not used to being locked up. Came out, I was broke. I was the most notorious pariah in all of aviation. The judge had put sanctions on me. I neglected to tell you that were heavy duty. Layer concrete right over the top of my coffin to make sure that I never, ever flew again. About a year after I got out of prison, in another story I don't have time to go into, but it's worth a, worthy of the telling, he lifted the sanctions on me. That's a wonderful story. Again, another miracle. The FAA said if you want to fly again, you start from the bottom with a private license, which I'd never had. I'd come out of the Marine Corps, been given an instrument and a commercial ticket, and was done. None of my friends thought starting at the bottom was possible. And I didn't for a few days. Then I thought, how do I stay sober one day at a time? Why don't I just do one license at a time? And so that's what I did. I applied everything that I've learned in here. Every single part of this story involves what I've learned in here. Ten and a half months later, I had four licenses in my pocket. I had the written parts done, but there's a flying part. <coughs> Excuse me. And I looked at that, $10,000, $20,000, that's a deal breaker. I can't do it. I'm working at Anchor Hospital now in the counseling department. I'm making fourteen grand a year, just barely staying alive. I can't do that. I get a letter and a phone call from one of the guys at Northwest. He said, I've got a flight school you didn't know about. I want you to come up here and live with me and go through the flight school free. I went up there. I'm under 13 conditions of probation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me. And um, I had a check-in with the Minnesota DOC. And I was with him for 44 days, living with him and his family. Rained out 14 days, <coughs> flew the other 30 days, 70, um, and got, flew 78 hours, got four licenses back. <coughs> Excuse me. And got two of them by 11.15 one morning. I don't know that ever been done before. I came back. I had four licenses in my pocket. And I thought, well, that's great. But who's going to, nobody will hire me. A month later, the licenses physically arrived in the mail. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and uh, within an hour, I got a phone call from the head of the pilot union at Northwest. 
I ne the agreements had been filed. I never activated it. I never fought my termination. I believe they were justified and fair in terminating me. He said, I just <clears throat> had a phone call three hours ago, and it's the best one I've ever had, because he said, John Dasberg, who's the president and CEO of Northwest Airlines, made a personal decision to bring you back and put you back into full flight status. That was a decision that was so far beyond the word extraordinary when courage is, con I mean, I'm in the media. <clears throat> Everybody, I don't have any anonymity. It's in the headlines that I'm an alcoholic. I go to prison for it. <laughs> he is betting his career that I'm not going to relapse. <clears throat> He's betting his career that I don't relapse or have another flying incident. Why would he do that? I don't know, and I still don't to this day, and I've asked him. <clears throat> I go back on November the 1st of 93. Signed a very emotional back-to-work agreement, never to be a captain again. I said, that's fine. I'm now going to have part of a retirement back. I haven't lost it all. Taking Barbara to the dead end with a zero was horribly painful to me. I'm going to get some of it back. I'm overwhelmingly welcome back everywhere I go. There's always a small segment that doesn't want us to get up. But I have no encounters with those people. They don't come up to me. Everywhere I go, six to a dozen people over the course of a 12-day trip come up and introduce themselves and say, I'm glad you're back. My final year, I'm speaking at United Airlines. <clears throat> Late at night, I get a phone call. Same pilot, he said, guess what? John Dasberg's just changed the agreement. He thinks when you come back for your final year, you should be a 747 captain. All I'm doing is staying sober. That's all I'm doing. I go back and I check out and I finish my last year as a 747 captain. Completely fully restored, trusted because I'm a sober member of AA, not because I'm Lyle Prowse, not because I have anything special going for me. <coughs> I'm just a sober member of AA. So I get to fly a mega million dollar airplane, crew of 18, <coughs> excuse me, 400 passengers all over the world because I'm trusted. I retired at the mandatory retirement age then of 60 in 98, and as I retired, my attorney called me and said, I just had a phone call from the judge. He has never in 16 years supported a petition for pardon, but he'll support yours if you will make the attempt. I never considered it. <clears throat> I put the paperwork in, <clears throat> and two years later, I came walking into eight phone messages telling me I just received a presidential pardon. <coughs> Excuse me, the judge, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on with me here. Um, <clears throat> the judge had written a chokingly powerful three-page affidavit that I'm sure <clears throat> was a material reason why I got that pardon. I want to close. <clears throat> I've had a wonderful journey, a wonderful career. My second day in treatment, I sat at an outside A meeting at Clarkston, completely devoid of hope, <clears throat> listening to him finally read the promises. And I thought, I wonder if there's something to that. And then they got to the part that said, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, I thought, that's out. I, that lets me out. I'm going too far down. <clears throat> and I've had, you've not heard 70% of the story in the time that I've been here, the miracles that are involved in that. <clears throat> Let me close with something I heard Father Martin close with one time, and I'm not trying to steal from him. I got to spend a lot of time with him now going out to Ashley again <clears throat> sometime later this month. But he took it from a girl who'd sent it to him on a card, so I guess it's fair if I steal from him. <clears throat> but it's, it, it speaks to life as I understand it and as I wish it to be. And it, says, it simply says this, I do not wish you joys without a sorrow, nor endless day without the healing dark nor brilliant sun without the restful shadow, nor tides that never turn against your bark. I wish you strength and faith and love and wisdom and goods, gold enough to help some needy one. I wish you songs, but also blessed silence and God's sweet peace when every day is done. My name is Lyle. I'm an alcoholic, and I thank you for having me here. <clears throat>